Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we really come to this class with expectation and acknowledging the incredible privilege you give us to look into your word, to hear you speak to us. And as we consider this topic, which honest brothers in Christ disagree on, we pray that we would not have a divisive uh, mentality, but rather a humble attitude, uh, uh, an open attitude to learn and to try to understand your provision for the church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So today we're going <coughs> to, today um, handouts are there if, 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 if handouts are needed. If you brought your handout, oh, bonus points. Um, if you didn't bring your handout and it's in your car, your other car, uh, shame points. <laughs> shame for Jazzy. Um, so, uh, quick review, right? And each review will be even shorter than the one before. Um, Ephesians 2.20, Paul writes, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And that word foundation, uh, Paul is evoking a structural metaphor which implies that there is only one. It's for one time only. It is a it is a uh, initiatory layer upon which then the rest of the church structure is built. We don't have ongoing foundations generation after generation, right? And therefore, the apostles and prophets is only f- for that foundational period. It was a, it was a provision, specific provision for that period, and so. If we can look at uh, New Testament history, and we see this is the life of Jesus, the uh, the life and ministry of Jesus. This is the uh, ministry of the apostles, and then this is the uh, ongoing the church, right? Um, From here to here is what I would call redemptive history. What do I mean by redemptive history? Anyone? Remember? Review? Oh, Karen, there's a review for redemptive history. I know Kristen is. Who, 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 who can I pick on? Ashley. What is redemptive history? Unique, unrepeatable events in history. <laughs> in biblical, God's unfolding plan of salvation. That's right. So, Jesus died on the cross. We don't need to do it over and over and over. We don't need, it, we don't need a new Savior every generation, right? So, these are unique events that God has provided. And the apostles... Pentecost, uh, the the ingrafting of the Gentiles, the proclaiming and planting of the churches in Acts, all of that is a unique event, never to be repeated again for a foundational layer. And then this is what I would call ongoing church, ongoing um, history. Okay, we are here, we are not here, and so whatever happens here is not a model for us here, right? We don't say. Uh, we need to find a new Jesus every generation, right? Or we need to find a new Apostle Peter or Apostle Paul. Um, and that includes the Apostles, which is relatively uncontroversial. People acknowledge there are no modern Apostles today. People who say that, by the way, I always say, well, how do you know? <laughs> Ephesians 2.20 is a pillar text for how we know. And it also includes the Prophets, right? The Apostles are for this foundational period, and the Prophets is for that foundational period. Now, one of the sort of rebuttals of the um, continuationists is they'll say, well, there are two kinds of prophets, right? There's um, the upper, higher-level prophets, so I would call infallible, authoritative, how do you spell it? 
More spelling. Authoritative prophets, right? Prophets who say, thus saith the Lord, uh, like Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, and then there's, you know, fallible, meaning they can make mistakes, non-authoritative, they don't govern the church. Prophets, right? And so the continuationists will say, this ceases, and this continues. You guys remember that argument? Two responses to that. Number one, um, that's an interesting theory. I would need biblical proof for this kind of prophet, right? Where is it? And if you actually look in scripture, there's no biblical example, right? There's no biblical example. And then I have a second argument, which is, Okay, let us assume that there are two levels of prophets. This one ceases, this one continues. So I would say to my continuationist brothers, and they are brothers, I would say to them, okay, so you're basically saying something ceases. Where did you get that idea that something ceases? Where does it say in scripture, infallible authoritative prophets cease, lower level prophets continue, right? And whatever argument they make, they're going to have to eventually rested on this argument that there's this foundational period and if they're resting it on this on this argument this cessationist argument then basically the cessationist argument is correct right um the third thing i would also say right so this is kind of a partial cessationism the third thing i would also say is this kind of prophecy which is that you know god gives me these intuitive kind of vague impressions i think lends itself to abuse so that people say, I have a prophecy. Um, I think God is uh, telling me that you need to marry, don't marry that girl. You need to marry this girl, right? I think uh, it lends itself to abuse because what do you say to somebody like that? That's a prophecy? God is saying this? God is speaking this? How can you disagree? And I think a lot of times, like I've talked to people, I remember distinctly talking to a sister in Christ who said, um, who is dating a non-Christian, and we know that the Bible is fairly clear, you should marry another believer, don't be unequally yoked, and she was dating a non-believer, and she says, God spoke to me, and God gave me this incredible sense of peace, that I, I can marry him. I said, but scripture says, but God said to me, personally, what am I supposed to say? Oh, well God's, oh, I didn't know God said it to you. Um, <laughs> I think this kind of communication from God therefore lends itself to abuse because it can be very self-serving. Where does she get this notion? I think she just really loved this, you know, boyfriend and she really wanted to marry him and she's like, oh, but the Bible says, oh, yes, but God, I, I hear his voice. So I don't want to mock too much. I think it really lends itself to contradicting what's already clear in Scripture and it, I think, undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is enough for guidance and, and, and providing for a holy life. All right, so that's all by way of review. Any questions, comments on that before we dive into <coughs> tongues? No? All right. Wade is like off on his own. I can only adjust. Join us. There are handouts here if you've forgotten. All right. So uh, I don't know where it is on here, but... Can you go to the thing where it says the gift of tongues is the gift of language? I'm not sure where it is on your handout. I think it's on the, the back of the second page. 
Yes, second column. Back up second page, second column. All right. So, let's talk about the gift of tongues. The word tongue, glossa in Greek, okay, means language. This is clear if you look at any Greek-English lexicon. If you study the Greek language, you go to Greece, you say glossa. What does it mean? <laughs> They'll say language. Okay? So, um, uh, and you can see that very clearly in Acts chapter 2, right? Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. What happened is God said in Acts uh, 1.8, you guys remember Acts 1.8? Uh, Wait for me in Jerusalem, and I will give you the power of the Holy Spirit, right? To be my witnesses. So they're waiting, right, for this power. And you guys remember what, uh, how I define power? Power is not just like, right? But what is, what is this kind, what is this specific power? Very technical term. Harry, you pick on. Um, <laughs> power, okay. Who can I pick on? Uh, Tracy, power. No, Ashley, do you remember what I said? What, what was power? No. Obviously, none of what I said has sunk in. Wade, power. <laughs> I was last week. And what we talked about the first week. Oh. Is it the, the gifts? The signs and wonders. Yes, who said that? Oh, the signs and wonders. Chelsea? Oh, my star pupil. Oh, my Tracy. My <laughs> 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 Chelsea, 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 Chelsea. <laughs> okay, obviously you guys are not convinced. So let us go back. Um, let us go back. Uh, let me prove it to you. Um, turn to page, second page. Apostles and the power of the Spirit, second column, Romans 15. Okay, let me just read it to you, okay? There's ample evidence that when Paul speaks, uh, when the Bible speaks of the power of the Spirit, we're talking about signs and wonders, Paul writes, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Listen, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. There you go. Paul defines it for us. What is the power of the Spirit? It is signs and wonders, okay? Um, so, so that's the argument, right? Associated with the apostolic ministry is signs and wonders. Okay? So, Paul, uh, so Jesus said to the apostles, wait, not just for the Spirit, Remember, they actually already have the Spirit. If you read the end of the Gospel of John, they already have the Spirit. Okay? So, they're waiting for this other thing, which um, some charismatic brothers misinterpret as what's called the second blessing. Okay? Um, but it's not. It's power. And what is this power? It's the power of signs and wonders to be witnesses. Right? Remember we said signs and wonders is for attestational purposes. And so, this is what happens in Acts. Right, they're waiting, and then, boom, they receive this power. Okay, so let's read Acts chapter 2. Uh, let's have Harry read it for me. So you want to think? Yeah. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. Yeah, so... They're speaking in tongues, right? This is the gift. What is this gift? Let's keep going. Now there were dwelling uh, in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Okay, so uh, uh, this may not be, um, you may not know this about Pentecost, but Pentecost is one of the uh, fest, one of the feasts, Jewish feasts, and uh, you're supposed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this. And so there were what's called uh, the, the diaspora, the Jews were scattered throughout the world. And a lot of these Jews didn't speak Jewish, uh, uh, Hebrew anymore, no, Jewish, Hebrew. <laughs> Hebrew, Aramaic. And so they spoke their native language, right? Whatever, wherever they were from. And so when they came back, they were bewildered. They were amazed because the apostles had this gift by which they can preach the gospel, what? In their own language, right? Um, let, let me read it from here. Uh, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? They're pretty amazed. Galileans are the country bumpkins of the ancient world. How are these simple country folks, people from like, excuse me, like Alabama or Mississippi, suddenly they're speaking French and Italian and Russian. They're like, what the heck is going on, right? Um, And and listen, verse 9, I'm not going to read the whole, but it lists all of these provinces, right? Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and uh, uh, um, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And others mocking said they are filled with new wine. <laughs> so this is relatively uncontroversial. Continuationists do not, do not dispute this. Clearly, at Pentecost, the gift of tongues is what? The gift of foreign languages. Okay. So, so what is tongues? The gift of foreign languages, okay? This is a pretty significant gift because uh, the Old Testament has spoken of all the peoples of God, all the nations coming into the people of God. How are these nations going to hear? Not everyone speaks Aramaic or or Hebrew. Um, And so God pours out this gift to the, to the, to the apostolic uh, ministry generation so they can go and preach the gospel in all these different languages, okay? Now, the continuationists will say, okay, I acknowledge that, that's the gift, but there's another secondary gift aspect to it, which is tongues is as um, ecstatic <coughs> prayer language, Okay? So this is probably the tongues that you're familiar with, right? Um, it sounds like, you know, uh, uh, like some sort of like, uh, I don't even know how to simulate it, but it sounds like very exotic, right? Very strange, and you can't understand it, but it's a special uh, language that God gives you so that you can pray to God, commune with God, and it's this prayer language, <laughs> um, and uh, so that's the contention, right? Um, and so they say, so the, 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 con- the continuation is say, this gift has ceased, where you get this gift of speaking another language. You've never spoken Italian before, you can speak Italian, right? But this gift continues. So that's the argument, right? Before we move on, or let me, ad- before I address this aspect, let me just simply again say, all right, let me get this straight. So what you're saying is that there's two tongues, right? There's tongues as foreign language, which is an axe. No one disputes this, right? This has ceased, but this continues. 
right? My argument would be again, um, it's exactly like this, right? They split the gift, and they're saying this higher gift has ended, and this lower gift ha- continues on. My argument would be that's cessationism, right? You're basically saying something has ceased. How do you know something has ceased? One of the arguments continuationists make is where in the Bible does it say gifts have ceased? And I will say to my continuationist brothers, all right, you too. <laughs> If you are already conceding something has ceased, then you've already conceded to the entire argument. Now we're just fighting over what exactly has ceased and what has not. Does that make sense? But all right, let's address this secondary issue, um, ecstatic languages. So what are the proof texts that are cited? These should be familiar to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Actually, 1 Corinthians 13, 14 is part of one giant discussion that Paul is talking about the gift of tongues. Okay? Um, Paul writes, uh, well, actually, who should I have read? Uh, Karen, can you read 13 verse 1? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Oh, keep going, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. All right, so they say, okay, there's the tongues of men, and then there's tongues of angels, right? And so uh, uh, when you hear charismatic continuations talk about uh, the gift of tongues that continues, they say it's this gift of, it's a heavenly language. It's the tongues of angels, and so, you know, this is why we can't understand it, because it's not our own language. Another example, or, or the other text, the key text they cite is 1 Corinthians 14. Um, Ashley, can you read that? Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. <coughs> for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Okay, well, let me stop right there. So they say, this is, you know, this, this gift, you're, you're addressing other people, but this secondary gift, the ecstatic prayer language, you're talking to God, right? And so people don't have to understand because it's uh, heavenly, angelic language. Keep going. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Yeah, so they say this prayer language, um, you're just building yourself up, right? It's not necessarily for other people, it's for yourself. So you, you pray in your room, and, and uh, you have this gift of tongues, and you feel edified, you feel very encouraged, and you feel the sense of God's presence and warmth, and, uh, and you're speaking to God. You don't understand it yourself, but it's this heavenly language. Is this familiar? Am I describing it correctly, or have I, have I um, unfairly described it? Would anyone dispute that, that description? No? All right. So, what is my response to that? My response is that I think our continuationist brothers have misinterpreted or misread 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. If you actually read the whole of 1 Corinthians, what is Paul doing? Paul is writing to a Corinthian church that is deeply dysfunctional. They're doing everything wrong. For example, the Lord's Supper, right? Um, The Lord's Supper, the rich bring this rich fare. The poor have nothing. And so during the Lord's Supper, the rich eat by themselves. Steak or what? I mean, I don't know. Good bread, right? And the poor are like, oh, no food. Oh, I'll just watch you eat, right? And so Paul says, what you are doing 
is not the Lord's Supper. So he describes something and he says, this is wrong, right? Um, he's doing the exact same thing with the gifts. The Corinthian church was a very showy, proud church. So they were super blessed with gifts. They had prophets. They had the gift of tongues. And again, I think this is what they had. But instead of using this for evangelistic purposes, they said, holy smokes, I can speak Italian. And they're like, ta-da, and they start speaking Italian in a worship service, right? They're showing off. And so this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, he's not describing what tongues is, he's describing what tongues is not. And so when he says the tongues of angels, he's not, he's being, he's like speaking an exaggerated language. He's saying, right, like, uh, 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 you don't have love, but you think you have tongues of angels. That's nothing, he says. He's, he's, he's being sarcastic, right? Like, in Second Corinthians, he talks about super apostles. Is there such a thing as super apostles? I never knew there was another category called super apostles. Paul's being sarcastic. He's, 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 lovingly rebuking, mocking the Corinthian church. Because they, they believe in these super apostles, right? So he's saying that it doesn't exist. They believe in tongues of angels, perhaps. He says it doesn't exist. And then when he says, you know, verse 4, the one who, who speaks in tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church, right? He's commending prophecy over tongues. And I think what he's saying is, look, you guys are speaking in tongues, and you're just like self-satisfied, you know? You're just serving yourself. You're just feeling good. Aha, I can speak Italian. You, no one knows what I'm saying, but I'm awesome. And he's saying, you build yourself up. He's not saying, yeah, that's the way it should be. He's saying, that's the way it shouldn't be, right? It's a total abuse. And so, I think for our continuationist brothers to take 1 Corinthians 13, 14 as a description of this continuing gift is greatly mistaken because Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 is describing a deep, 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 deep dysfunction in the Corinthian church. By the way, this is the only passage upon which continuationist charismatics take this, get this idea of ecstatic prayer. There's nowhere else. I mean, if Paul talked about it in Philippians or Ephesians, you know, healthier churches, if Peter talked about it, I think there will be a lot more weight to this. But the only place is where Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church. And he describes this gift of tongues. And then this is where we get this idea. And so therefore, I don't think it exists, this idea of ecstatic prayer. It doesn't make any sense. Why would God give a gift to people which builds themselves up and it's a private prayer language? All the gifts is for what? The upbuilding of the church. It's always for others. It's never inward directed. Gifts are for service, not for self-satisfaction, which is the way Corinthians were using it. So this idea of self-satisfied, <coughs> ecstatic prayer, I just it doesn't fit the paradigm of gifts. Any questions or comments? So I would say I this argument just doesn't hold water. Um, I, I've heard some continuationists say that, oh, it's, they'll say that it's not for building up themselves, mm-hmm. but they'll say that the tongues that they, that come from them are like the growing of the Spirit, like in Romans 8. Yeah. So, like, what would you say to them? Uh, like, they, they, they say it's not for themselves, it's for the church. Okay. There's Spirit praying through them. Sure. Paul, you know, definitely addresses that. That's why he says, like, look. He's rebuking the Corinthian church. He's like, you're speaking Italian in service. Nobody understands what you're saying. Well, Italian is probably a wrong language. You know, you're speaking Chinese in church, right? Nobody understands what you're saying. He says, don't use this gift 
in the church service, unless I would say there are Chinese people. And you're like, wow, I'm hearing the gospel in Chinese. Or you have a translator. And I think when he says you have a translator, I don't think Paul necessarily means it seriously. I think he's again rebuking the Corinthians because the worship service is supposed to be orderly, it's supposed to be upbuilding the church, and you have these selfish Corinthians, these show off of egotistical Corinthians who are just using it for themselves to say, aha, I'm super, I'm amazing, look at me. And so uh, 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 this whole idea of groaning, I mean, where is the biblical foundation is what I would say. Like, there is no biblical foundation. Are they citing Romans chapter 8, groanings? The the Spirit helps us groan. I think you're preaching on this, in fact, this week, right? Um, I really, you know, then they're really stretching it, so... It's kind of like they're just pulling like the proof text. And yeah, they're proof. It, it, it fits their interpretation. Exactly. It fits their paradigm. I would also say, and this is one of the arguments that I think uh, doesn't have as much cachet with the modern generation, but this argument of tongues as ecstatic prayer is about 100 years old. The church has never, ever, ever thought of it like that. For 1,900 years, the church has existed. You know, without this ecstatic prayer language, where did this come from? So, again, the continuationists are in a really difficult position. The gifts ceased for 1,900 years. And then, in Azusa Street, Los Angeles, in 1905 or something like that, it sprung up again. Um, Maybe, but I think, isn't a much more plausible argument that the gift of tongues is the gift of foreign languages? And where do we see that? It ceased. And we'll talk about why it ceased later. But I don't know if that satisfied your question. Any other questions about that? All right, so let's go on to the next point. Uh, tongues is a foundation-laying gift of revelation. So if you actually look at 1 Corinthians 14, remember the context. Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church for the way they use tongues. And then he says, this is what tongues is. You're using it wrong. This is what it really is. Um, can I have uh, Ashley? Did I really have you read it? Tracy, can you read uh, verse 20 and on? Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in thinking be mature. Yes, let me just stop right there. So notice this tone of rebuke, right? He's saying, you guys are children. You're you're like this little little baby. Like, oh my goodness, look at this gift, right? And so he says, be mature, right? Be mature. This is what tongues is for, okay? Verse uh, 21. In the law, it is written. Oh, well, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. But so he says, "All right, <laughs> let me tell you what tongues is." All right, and he's gonna he's gonna teach them. He's gonna cite scripture. Keep reading. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy <coughs> is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Yeah. Um, so, he defines, so he says prophecy is a gift that builds up the church. Uh, it's good for service, right, worship service. If a prophet stands up and speaks the oracles of God, everyone is encouraged because God is speaking. But tongues, nobody understands. It's not, it's not beneficial to the church. So what does he say? What is tongues for? He says tongues is outward directed. It's for unbelievers. Tongues is for evangelism, in other words. Just like it was used in um, Acts chapter 2, right? You go out there to the marketplace to people who don't know 
uh, who don't you don't speak the same language with, and you have this gift of tongues, and you can you can preach to them. And then the second thing that's really interesting is he quotes the Bible. He quotes specifically Isaiah 28. He says, this is the reason, this is the purpose of tongues. I have printed Isaiah 28 for you, and we will read Isaiah 28. <coughs> Isaiah 28 will tell us what tongues is for. So here in Isaiah 28, the prophet is speaking to faithless Israel. Israel has abandoned God. Uh, specifically, the, the, the religious leadership has abandoned God. And so Isaiah is prophesying doom and judgment. He says, judgment will come. And what he specifically says is, you know, God has been speaking to you through the prophets, but you won't listen. He says, but I'll tell you what, one day you will listen when you hear foreign tongues, foreign languages. And what is he talking about? Can anyone um, guess what he's talking about when he says foreign tongues, foreign languages, without looking at the text too deeply? He's talking about a invading army. So he says there will be an invading army that comes to your land. And they're going to be talking in Assyrian or Babylonian. And you're going to be like, I don't understand. And then he says that will be the sign of God's judgment. You refuse to listen to God, listen to foreign tongues. So listen. So let's read um, Isaiah 28. By the way, this is what Paul cites as the purpose of tongues. So where am I? Uh, uh, Chelsea, can you read? Uh, 20. For, by pe- for by people with strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. To whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. Alright, so let's uh, let's skip down to verse 15. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Yeah, so I don't know if the, you guys understand, but basically the, the, the Jew, the, 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 the faithless Jews, the religious leadership are saying, I love death. I, I hate God. I love death. Of course, they didn't say I love death. What they're really saying is I love myself. I love my idols. But God's saying, okay, you, you, you made a covenant with Sheol, so this is what's going to happen. Uh, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. All right. So, very important text, Isaiah 28. Let's think this through. What is Paul saying? Paul is a master theologian. He says this gift of foreign languages is actually a fulfillment of Isaiah 28. So that at Pentecost, when the apostles were preaching in foreign languages, Isaiah 28 was being fulfilled. That was the ultimate fulfillment. Not invading armies, but apostles preaching the gospel. And what what happened at, at Pentecost? Do you guys remember? Some people believe, but what happened to the others? They what? What did they say? Yeah, they scoffed. They said they're drinking new wine. Don't believe these crazies. And so what, what happened with the gift of tongues? It split. It split Jerusalem. There are some people, God's own sheep, who heard God's voice and said, this is the truth they believed in Jesus, a Savior. And there are many, many Jews who said, no, uh, 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 I scoff at this, I mock this, and they want to kill the church. And so it split the Jews, and it was a sign of judgment to them. When tongues was being preached, it was a sign of judgment, right? Now, okay, so that's that, right? So it's evangelist, so it it serves a dual purpose. It evangelizes (laughs) and it's judgment, Right? 
And then this is what Paul says, or this is what Isaiah says. Notice verse 16, he says, Behold, I'm laying what? A very familiar word. I'm laying a foundation in Zion, a stone, a test of stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, right? So, let's think this through. Paul, uh, Isaiah, and Paul is quoting Isaiah. Isaiah says that this sign of tongues is what? A foundation, right? And it's a cornerstone. Does anyone remember what a cornerstone is? <coughs> you put it on the corner to, to measure, make it straight and even. Yeah, it's the first stone you lay down. If it's off by even a one degree, the entire house will collapse because it magn- it amplifies the error. So it's the most important thing. And, it, and you, so you lay this down, and then you lay down the foundation, right? So. Everything else is built on this foundation cornerstone. Tongues is that foundation cornerstone. What is Paul? What is Isaiah saying? What is Paul saying? It's part of this, right? Tongues is here. That's what Paul says. Paul defines tongues specifically for this foundational layer, and therefore, it has ceased. It is no more. Because there was a time in which um, the Jews were split off from the people of God, right? So you have Israel, okay? And then what happens is tongues, or another way to say it is the gospel, okay? And then they got split. Unbelievers, believers. So they became the church, or they joined the church, right? And then unbelieving Jews were cleaved off. Paul talks about this in um, Romans 11, uh, where uh, uh, he says there's there's the the, the, the tree, and then there's faith, uh, faithless branches are broken off, and then wild branches are grafted in. This breaking off, grafting, and process is a foundational period in the church when the apostles were preaching. And Israel cut, cut itself off. And therefore, we don't need tongues anymore because we don't need that judgment sign anymore. We don't need to break off the unbelieving Jews. You can see that all throughout the Bible, Romans 9, right? Uh, wh- where are we? Can I have um, Melissa read Romans 9? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but, it, but as it were... Yeah, sorry. But that, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Yeah, think about it. I mean, Paul, uh, uh, Paul talks about this. Jesus talks about this. Here is the stone. Well, let's read the next passage, too. Uh, Yvonne, can you read it as well? Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people speaking from the streets. Yes. This is a frequent theme in the, in the New Testament, that there is a stone. The same stone does two things. It establishes the church. It is a cornerstone. It builds the church, but it is also a rock of stumbling, a rock of offense. Right? Jesus says... Have you not read in, in scriptures? He's citing uh, uh, the Psalms, the stone that the builders rejected. So what are the bu- who are the builders? The builders is the Jewish leadership. 
They look at the stone and they say, is this a good stone for a cornerstone? No, this is a terrible stone. It's a crappy stone. They reject it. And then God takes that rejected stone. He says, this will be the cornerstone of my church. And it's marvelous. It's amazing. The very Jesus Christ, when he preached the gospel, people took offense. They hated him. They crucified him. And so it's a foundational event in redemptive history. It doesn't happen over and over and over and over again. Tongues is only for one period and that's it. That's the argument for cessationism for tongues. So it's two parts. The whole idea of ecstatic prayer is built on really weak biblical foundations. And the second point, this gift of foreign languages is only for a period as a foundation stone that stumbles unbelieving Jews. Any questions or retorts or discussions, comments? There is no dumb question. Let me let me help lower the hurdle. <laughs> so you're saying both of those have ceased. Are you, is that what you're saying? This doesn't exist. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So when you go when you go to a church and then you hear people like they're saying something, like yeah. what would you say that they're doing? I have to be very careful here. Mm-hmm. I will say I do not know what is going on. Um, I will say that when I used to belong to a charismatic church. And they used to teach me how to speak tongues. They say it, they told me, I don't know if it's particular to my church, they said say hallelujah really fast. <laughs> and so maybe it can be explained uh, you know, phenomenologically, you know, like in terms of like there's like a sociological dimension to it, right, where you just speak tongues. I don't know. Uh, I'm not saying it's fake or ungenuine. I think that when there are believers who speak in tongues and they feel very edified. They feel really close to God. I would say that's wonderful, but you know, it could be that you're mistaken, and yet God still uses the mistakenness as a source of you know blessing and, and fellowship. But I would say that the uh, the the actual practical experience of it is not a sufficient argument for me. I would need biblical arguments. If they're going to cite First Corinthians fourteen, I'm going to say, well, I think that's an erroneous interpretation. And then I would also say, it only existed 100 years. So let's pretend we live in 1825. There is no argument. There, there, this argument doesn't exist. because ha- No one has come up with it. So that's what I would say. Um, so in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, uh, you make the argument that you, or that you say that uh, you think that he's saying that, that his message is like kind of a sarcastic message to the church, right? Yes. Um, is that kind of the uh, vastly agreed upon interpretation of this passage because, home, like, um, so for example, like, um, people think that Shakespeare is not like one person to multiple people because when you read A Midsummer Night's Dream to sure. King Lear, the writing style is different, sure. and sarcasm in Paul's writing is not common in his. Writing. Yeah, I mean, so if we had an audio argue, recording, right. then we could hear, you know, right. the sarcasm. <laughs> so, so sarcasm is a really sophisticated kind of argument. Is <coughs> Paul is saying something, and you have to know that he's actually saying the opposite, right? Um, right. So, so is this the consensus interpretation? The answer is no. Okay. Um, uh, many, many people dispute the interpretation I offered. There are, ma- mo- I would say, majority of Christians in America are continuationists. So therefore, of course, there'll be 
you know, very f uh, uh, friendly to, uh, to, 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 to the idea that, you know, this indeed, you know, ecstatic languages. Again, giant scholars, I mean, John Piper will say this is ecstatic prayer language. He talks about how he wants it. He prays for it. And who am I to tell John Piper you're wrong? I would just say, wow, John Piper, <laughs> can I learn from you? <laughs> can I sit by your, your feet and learn? So, you know, I say this with a great degree of respect. Who am I? I'm not saying it's my interpretation. So this is, you know, what's considered the Reformed interpretation. So, you know, if you read, like, Reformed commentaries, they will all say, no, 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 this is mistaken. <laughs> but also, um, uh, as we probably know, uh, sarcasm is not a very good way to communicate via writing, especially via, via like, text <laughs> 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 Well, let me say so, this. I, mean, I don't know if that's... Paul <laughs> definitely employs sarcasm. He definitely employs it. The dispute is whether he's being sarcastic here. But is it the consensus that he employs sarcasm through the Corinthian correspondence? Absolutely. That is without contention. Everybody agrees he's being sarcastic at numerous places in Scripture. Paul, Paul talks about super apostles. Nobody is saying there are super apostles. Maybe some wackadoos, but they're wackadoos. You know, don't listen to them. So, yeah, I don't know that answer. <laughs> Any other comments or questions? That's a great question, by the way. Yes. Literary analysis. That can be All right. So, with the remaining time I have, um, oh, so uh, let me just run through this. Okay. Tongues is also revelation. Um, let's go back to First Corinthians 14. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he's, he utters mysteries in the Spirit. I cited two passages there as proof texts. The word mysteries, we, we think, oh, mysterious language. Paul is saying mystery is the gospel. And so tongues utters the gospel. Tongues is revelation, right? And therefore tongues is equivalent to prophets. And there are many, many proof texts for this. Let me look at Acts chapter 2, for example, down below, second to the bottom. Remember, uh, uh, they're employing the gift of tongues. And then Peter explains what's going on. Because everyone's saying, these guys are drunk. Peter quotes Joel chapter 2. And in the last days it shall be, uh, God declares that I will pour out my spirit in all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. What is Paul saying? Tongues is prophecy. There you go. Prophecy is a foundational period of the church, therefore so too tongues. Tongues and prophecy, same thing. Tongues and prophecy is both declaring the word of God. Prophecy is just doing it in the common language. Tongues is doing it outwardly in a foreign language, okay? Ver Acts 19, right? And they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. So these two are linked. All right, let's keep going. What about the gift of healing? All right, let me, let me cover this in two minutes. Um, is there a specific verse that says um, healings is, is what has ceased, is part of the apostolic age? There is no verse. But I think when you read about signs and wonders, and then you read the entire account of Acts, it seems to me very obvious that Luke is primarily talking about these miraculous healings, these spectacular healings. And the other point I would make is that part of these miraculous healings is people rising from the dead. <laughs> I don't know if you guys uh, know this from Acts. There are two different accounts of people who are dead, 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 who are risen as part of this miraculous gifting, right? So there's Acts chapter 9, Tabitha, she's dead, right? And Peter says, Tabitha, get up. She, she awakes. Acts chapter 20, this guy named Eutychius, he's listening to Paul preach. 
drone on and on. He's sitting on a windowsill. He gets sleepy. He falls down. Second floor, dies. Right? <laughs> Peter says, don't be alarmed. This is the apostolic age. Rise, ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so here's my question to you guys, right? Here's the gift of healing, okay? Now, you know, um, people say, oh, uh, I've seen people heal, you know, arms growing longer or what, whatnot, right? And I'll say, okay, okay, okay. But you do know that in Acts, people rose from the dead, right? So here we have healing, dead people rising, okay? And then you have healing, I don't know, I would call minor injuries, okay? People will say, okay, you're right, dead people don't rise anymore, this has ceased, Okay? <laughs> But this continues. Do you guys see a pattern here? You're just picking and choosing. How do you? Who, where did you get that this is? This has ceased, and this continues. If this continues, have the guts to say it's all continuing. And if it's all continued, where are people rising from the dead? Benny Hinn, I want to wheel up a carcass onto the stage, and then you you do it. Let's see it. Okay. So. This is what Peter did. This is what Paul did. They rose people from the dead as part of the signs and wonders of the apostolic age to testify to the glory of Christ, to the attestational witness of the gospel. And that has ceased because it was only for that foundational period. Any comments or questions? So that's, that's my argument against the healings. The follow-up question might be, well, does that mean we can't pray for healings? Of course not. If one of you were in the hospital, I would pray for your healing. We ought to pray for healing. God can heal. I'm just saying God doesn't heal in that spectacular, amazing, uh, uh, incontestable, uh, super way. Someone rising, you know, if like Yvonne, you know, fell from the second floor and she dies, she's going to be dead. (laughs) There's no, there's no, you know, coming back to life, you know. Um, um, But if Yvonne has cancer. We will all go to the church. We will all go to hospital. We will all lay our hands. Paul commands it. We will pray for Yvonne. Oh, God, give her life. You know, heal her. And does that mean she says, oh, I know this is a gift of healing. I will not go to doctors. No, go to doctors. You know? So, I don't know if that makes sense. We can pray for healing. We can pray for God's working. I'm not saying miracles don't exist in the sense that God does his work. I'm just saying these spectacular signs and wonders have ceased. That's what I'm saying. Um, so I guess for my own sanity, how, how do I uh, interpret the minor healings I've seen in my life? I'm going to tread on careful water uh, here. Um, tread carefully. First, I will say I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Second of all, uh, people like Benny Hinn, for example, have said that they do miraculous healings. It could be, I do not know, it could be that there is some shenanigans going on. Wait, no, no, I mean, like, I've seen it, like, right next to me, like, my best friend. It could be, what, did you say someone rising from the dead? No, um, I'm, I'm talking about the minor. <laughs> minor? Okay, <laughs> what, what, describe it. Uh, well, my, my friend was, uh, born with, like, um, his legs were different sizes, and so he had, so he had a difficult time walking, uh-huh. and then, um, when we went to his church, uh, the pastor prayed for him, and then his leg grew. <laughs> like, grew a foot? Uh, it grew about six inches. Six inches? Yeah. That's amazing. And, like, I saw it, like, right in front of me. So you saw um, it actually extend? Exactly, yeah. And then similarly, um, in college, um, my friend got in a car accident, 
and she had a brace around her neck. And uh, Kim's friend, uh, Kim's a very charismatic church, and Kim's friend prayed for her, and then uh, her neck was completely fine afterwards. After a major accident. Yeah, I would say, you know, those things are certainly amazing. I personally have not seen those things, right. so I cannot say yeah, what happened. Own, saying, like, like, for my own sanity, like, how do I interpret what, I, what I've seen? Like, they were mistaken? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's difficult to mistaken mistake of late growing? Maybe, I mean, maybe. I mean, I um, um, uh, in Korea, there's something called shamanism. Mm. Shamanists uh, have these amazing magical powers that I've heard accounts of. Right. I've never witnessed it. Um, but they say they, they, they have these powers because they, they speak to this demon world, to the spirit world. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to tell them <laughs> other than maybe you're mistaken. I mean, it's possible. There might be sociological reasons why these things happen, like you perceive certain things. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. All I can say is scripture. <laughs> and and I don't think there is any evidence in scripture that says that these miraculous signs and wonders continue. And so if it happens, I would say I would really need a really incontestable proof. Like I would say the, the neck being healed is sufficiently subjective that that it might be misinterpreted. I think the leg growing is more amazing, Mm -hmm. but still sufficiently subjective. I would need something like he had no leg, Uh and then the leg, like, appeared. You know, I need something really incontestable. Or someone rising from the dead. I I would throw all this away and say, you know, right. (laughs) Um, okay. I don't know if I'm satisfied with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can give you a satisfying like, answer. I'm pretty yeah. sure I wasn't on drugs when I saw that. Like, <laughs> no, that's true, that's true. Like, that's flashing true. lights or anything like that. It was that's like true. a quiet room. And it was like, it happened, so I mean. And, and like... No strobe light. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, and if you go to like any kind of charismatic church, like Bethel, up in Reading, like, you see that all the time. Yeah. Um, and so, I agree, I agree. So I don't know, like, if you can... Uh, when I was, I, when I was like, growing up in, in a Pentecost, I mean, a charismatic church, I used to watch Benny Hinn all the time. I did, I used to watch Benny Hinn a lot. And so that was the closest I ever saw to people being healed. Mm-hmm. Now, when I look back at it, I I think it was mostly shenanigans. I mean, like, there's a lot of things I don't agree about with, with Benny Hinn, too. But, I mean, like, there's other people and other situations where... Yeah, this is why I think we need to really have a <coughs> humble attitude. I do not want you guys to say, I'm a cessationist. You know, and sneer <laughs> at our charismatic brothers and say, you guys are dumb. <laughs> right? I think we need to have a great deal of humility and just say, I don't know. I think this is a really good way to just respond to that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe God is doing it. Maybe. I just, I don't, I, I mean, where does it fit in the, the scripture? You know, I, I don't know. The, the argument that people cite for why con- healings continue is they say, well, God has given this gift. Why would he withdraw it? There's no reason. And I've given three, three, day, three weeks worth of reasons why God has withdrawn gifts. Is it an argument at all that the things can be from Satan? Is that? Yeah, I'm very reluctant to go there, but uh, the New Testament does talk about false signs, false wonders by the devil, and so that's a possibility. I'm not going to say that with what happened <laughs> oh, no, there, no, right? Oh. So I don't know, but I do know that churches that are charismatic has the tendency, a danger, to, to go down the path of being crazy and just like, pronouncing themselves like a new prophet or something like that. And so um, 
could be that you know Satan is allowing is these are demonic signs, and it, it's a way for him to uh, uh, mislead people. My personal view on that is that's probably happening in some churches. I I wouldn't go there with most. My thinking is it's there's some kind of this is a rationalist, you know, uh, cerebral part of me. There's a sociological thing going on. Um, I remember I used to go to charismatic meetings where they wanted me to manifest tongues. And so they would gather around me to pray. And they would just pray really. And they would start beating me and pushing me around. <laughs> I was, it, and it was a great feeling. It's just this wonderful feeling. I think like there's something about like reformed people. We don't like to touch each other. But I think if we just touch each other, it's just wonderful. There's like this like everyone's wanting you to have it. I, I wanted to do it, you know. But I was just too, I don't know, rational, I think maybe. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't. You know, and so... So maybe, you know, there's like people who are more, you know, uh, uh, g- given to group influences. I, I don't know. I really want to be careful. You know, yeah. Uh, and then in Matthew, there's a part where the disciples aren't able to heal this guy and Jesus rebukes him for not having enough faith. Yes. Um, the way that I interpret it, or the way that I did interpret that, yeah. is that I guess with faith, then good things can happen. Yeah, quenching the spirit, right. Yeah. So, this is what I would say to the, my charismatic brothers. Are, are dead people not rising because you don't have enough faith? Perhaps, yeah. There are people who claim to raise from the dead. There are. We would put them on the fringe wackadoo level. No, really. People who claim that are, even continuationist charismatics would be like, you're weird, right? So, but there are, you're right. <coughs> I want to see it on YouTube. <laughs> um, time is up there are actually uh, uh, um, there are counter arguments the most significant one is uh, 1 Corinthians 13 um, when the perfect comes the partial will pass away it specifically talks about tongues and, and prophecy ceasing not when the apostles die but when the perfect comes which is the second coming my response is that Paul is not talking about specifically the time when tongues and prophecy ceases, but he's comparing the two ages, this age and the age to come. And then I cite Ephesians 4. You can do the exact same logic until the unity of faith comes. We know that's the second coming as well. That means apostles continue all through the ages, but we know that's not true. And so that's my 30-second rebuttal to their main text. First Corinthians 13 is usually cited by continuation as the Achilles heels. Boom, proof text. They're like, First Corinthians 13, boom. All right. <laughs> done. So I think, you know, there are reasons, or there are, you know, uh, explanations for that. I hope this class has been beneficial. I hope it has not been a source of uh, conflict. Uh, I do want you to know that uh, we at this <coughs> church practice cessationism in the sense that we don't we don't have, you know, manifestations in our service, but if you are a charismatic brother, continuationist brother, we love you. We love you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it should not divide us because we're united on the gospel. This is not the gospel. This is a disagreement over a really minor issue. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you love us and you do give us gifts. Whether uh, the extraordinary gifts continue or not, we know that you have provided ways for us to serve each other, love each other, lay down our lives for each other. We pray that we would have this heart. We would hold on to each other, love each other, and that you would be uh, honored and glorified. Help us to make your name famous in the East Bay. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys. <laughs>